Metro Church. This is today's sign that the end is near. Before we get going on the harmony of the Gospels this morning, I want to go back two weeks to the sermon I preached on the second commandment. Um, the elder team and I want to be really clear that anything that becomes an idol in your life, anything that gets your worship other than Jesus is sin. Just, just want to make it crystal clear. Uh, additionally, in that sermon, I said some things about the show, The Chosen, that have been contested by, by others. It may not have been 100% accurate. So you have the freedom to come to me and to our elders and say, I, I don't know about that. I, can we talk about that? That's what we're here for, right? So, so please feel free to do that. And this is why all of us, I, I, I would just, I've said this before, it's been a while, but I'll say it again, and our elders agree, we want you to be Berean. We, we want you to be Berean, and, and that goes back to Acts 17.11. Acts 17.11 tells us, uh, Paul, Paul was preaching, uh, and, the, and the Berean Christians would listen to Paul, and then they would go home at night and open up their scrolls. They didn't have a codex, a, a, a book. They would go look at the Old Testament scrolls to see whether or not the things that Paul had said were true, according to the Scriptures. And so we're just... We're coming to you again saying, look, it's, it's on you to be Berean. And, uh, and we want you to be, in fact, Paul says that they were more noble-minded than the Christians at Thessalonica because the, the Christians at Thessalonica just heard Paul and they're like, okay, whatever you say. So, so what we're saying is like, don't take our word for it. It's incumbent upon you to study the scriptures, okay? And so everybody is responsible to be Berean. And every one of you, has access to all of our elders and to myself if you have any questions at all about anything. That's why we're here. We're here to serve you. And so um, please feel free to reach out to us anytime you have questions or concerns. That's why we're here, right? So just wanted to give that to you this morning before we jump in to the text. So let's, let's go to, I have to look at my, where are we? Harmony of the Gospels. This is week 33 of the Harmony of the Gospels. Wow. And, and we probably have like another 50 or more to, to finish it. It's just crazy to me. Um, so let's, let's just take this, this statement and go forward with this. Jesus was and is the eternal king. He was, he always has been, he is the eternal king. You think about a concept like eternity. And your brain will start to hurt after a little while. Eternity goes infinitely into the past. I, I don't even know, like I can't even conceptualize infinitely into the past. And it goes infinitely into the future. And if you stop and you think about it for too long, like it, again, you're going to have to take some Advil because it's just, it, it hurts. Jesus is the great I am. Though we, though we read through the Gospels, as we do this, it's important to remember that he has not, at this point in his earthly ministry, um, seized it. He hasn't taken possession of what is rightfully his. He's, he's walking according to the Father's will, and he will receive that kingdom and that inheritance, but he hasn't yet. He's, he's following 
the Father's voice. He's listening to the Father and he's doing whatever the Father says. And Jesus is patient and he's all wise and he knows all the optimal ways to navigate time and history and, and relationships and circumstances. And, and he's going to maximize everything that he's doing and everything that will come to pass in the future. So all of history in the text we're, we're reading this morning has led to this moment and all the moments that come between now, like the, the moment we're in now, and the time that Jesus comes, that future reality, he's got all that figured out. He already knows. He's, he's already there. Our future reality includes things like sin is eradicated forever. Um, death is no more. Can you, even, can you even fathom a world where sin is eradicated and death is no more? What an incredible promise from God. And we're not there yet, but we're closer today than we've ever been. And if there's a tomorrow for us, and, this is, and today's sign is that the end is near because we're in a tie, we could be done today, right? You, you don't know. We're not, there's, there's the certainty that we will live forever in his presence in the kingdom, okay? And, and we will live in his love and grace and, and make the most of what we have now for the days are evil. So what's coming on the horizon for us is a kingdom. Okay, it's an eternal kingdom from before the foundations of the world, and you and I worship and obey the God who's always been and who always will be, and He is fitting us. He's getting us ready to be full kingdom citizens. Now, because Jesus has offered up His life as our sufficient sacrifice, we can, if you put your faith in Jesus, then we can, and we do talk about this kingdom in terms of being both now and not yet. And that's confusing to people. See, the kingdom is now because Jesus has already gone to the cross. He's died for the sins of the world. And anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, they're a kingdom citizen. But we don't actually live physically in the kingdom. We're still ambassadors. We're still, we're still out in the world. We're ambassadors of the kingdom. But then we're going to go and live in the kingdom at some point, right? And so with these, these aspects and elements in mind, um, especially our personal relationship with Jesus, we just, we rest in the knowledge. We haven't fully attained it yet, but we will. We haven't seen it with our eyes. We haven't grasped it. We haven't, we really don't have an inkling of what we're going to be when we're glorified in his presence. We don't even know what that's going to be like. Like we, we just can imagine. We'll be us, but we'll be glorified us. I, I don't even, I, I can't even begin to try to explain that to you. Um, but rest assured, the kingdom of God is real, and I mean physically real, not just spiritually real, and it's coming. It's a reality that's coming. The scripture says every eye will see him, and every knee will bow before him. I love what um, my mentor and friend, Jan Hedinga, put it this way. He wrote a book called Follow Me, Experiencing the Loving Leadership of Jesus. And this is what Jan said. He said, the ultimate issue in the universe is leadership. Who you follow and what directs your life is the single most important thing about you. Tell me who your leader is politically, ideologically, spiritually, and culturally, and I can immediately tell you all kinds of things about you, even if your leader is yourself, which is what most of us prefer. The king will challenge you to examine your life and submit your life to Christ. Jan's right. He's right. And, and all of this talk about the kingdom that's coming, it's already here in some capacity, but it's still coming. 
all of this talk sets up our text this morning. As you'll remember that uh, Jesus had fed the 5,000, right? It's really more like 15,000 plus people because there were women and children present. And, and this has motivated the hearts of some people to try to make Jesus king by force. The, the problem is their motivation is their stomachs. That they, it's their flesh. They, they want Jesus to be king so they don't have to work for food anymore. He can just make food at will and multiply it at will. What a good king. We don't have to work anymore, right? And, and this is not the way a person enters into the kingdom of God with a mindset to, to get temporal things or with some kind of motivation to gain a life of ease. Hearts that are set on self are antithetical to the kingdom and to our king because he is selfless. So, so when we're thinking about ourselves, we're not, we're not in line with what Jesus wants for us. This is why Jesus is marching steadily to the cross because no amount of teaching, no amount of discipline or talking or shouting or beating or begging can change a sinful heart. It can't change it. This is precisely uh, it's, it's precisely that sinful heart that keeps people out of Christ's kingdom. And so Jesus is steadily marching on towards the cross because only the shed blood of Jesus sets men and women free from bondage to sin and opens the door to the kingdom that is both now and not yet. So, so let's go to the texts this morning and let's see how Jesus handles this reality. So if you have a harmony of the gospels, it's section 106. Um, and then I'll just give you the, the scripture references here, Matthew 14, 22 and 23. And then we have Mark and, and John here. So let me read those passages for you. Matthew 14, 22 and 23. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds, the, the crowds that had been fed, right? And, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. Here's Mark. Here's, here's Mark's gospel, uh, Mark 6, 45 and 46. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. And after they had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And then John records this event as well, John 6, 14 to 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, wow, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So um, there's, there's a couple of motives here, but I, I was thinking about you this week, moms. If you're moms in the room, you ever have one of those moments where it's just too much? And, and let me just, in, in honor of moms, moms have far more capacity for all that stuff that goes on at home than dads. Yeah, yeah, dads are like, yeah, no, I know. That's right. I, go, I go to work, come home. She has, like moms, your capacity for putting up with stuff is incredible. And, and it's not that your kids are misbehaving or doing bad things. It's, it's just too much going on, too much happening. And, 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 you, and you, don't, you don't lose it in those moments, right, moms? You don't lose it. Um, but you do say things like, all right, everybody outside. Go outside. Yes, it's raining. Yes, it's 30 degrees. Go, go outside. 
we live in Western Washington. You'll be fine. Mommy just needs some alone time, right? I've heard that. Uh, this is kind of similar to what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He's dismissed the crowds. Okay, show's over. Time to go home, folks. And now he's sending the apostles back across the Sea of Galilee because Jesus needs some time alone. He needs to be alone with the Father. And so he goes up a mountainside to pray, to be still, to hear the voice of his dad speaking to him. So stop and think about that for a minute. If Jesus, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son of the living God, needs regular moments to pull away from life and be alone with the Father, then you and I need the same. We cannot go on indefinitely without taking time to pull away from life and sit and be alone with the Father and just listen. So, so how, how much more ought we to seek regular time with God in prayer? He desires communion, communication with us because communication is essential to strong relationships. So he wants us to pull away from life every once in a while and, and, and really to make it a regular occurrence and just to sit and listen and pray and be with him. So part of what's happening here is the need for Jesus to get alone to commune with, with, with the Father. But the other piece, it's a continuation of what Satan started when he came to Jesus at the end of those 40 days of testing. Do you remember? And, and uh, he tempted him. And Satan, if you'll remember, he offered him a kingdom the easy way, right? Without the pain and death that awaits at Calvary. He showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, said, all these are yours if you just bow down to me. That's all you got to do. Bow down to me. So Jesus is pressing into the Father for strength and nearness to shun that temptation. And remember, there's a timing to these things and a plan that's been laid out among the members of the Trinity regarding the provision of salvation for mankind and the necessary self-sacrifice of the Son. All of that's tied to the kingdom. All of it's tied to the kingdom. And, and Jesus did not deny that he was the king and would be the king, but he's not going to inaugurate that kingdom until his earthly subjects meet the spiritual prerequisites for entering into the kingdom. Do you understand? He can't say, hey, the kingdom... It, yeah, it's here, but you can't come in yet. You show up to Disney like five hours early, and your kids, you, you know, you're like, ah, Disney. And then, oh, yeah, we have to stand here for five hours and wait. <laughs> Drive you nuts, right? This, the, so Jesus is saying, look, the, the kingdom's now, and it's not yet. The, yes, so you're coming into the kingdom, but it's not the fullness of being in the kingdom. In other words, he, he still has to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world in order to offer salvation so that humanity can come and can become kingdom citizens at all. That's the only way to be a kingdom citizen is to put your faith in Jesus. And that's why Jesus refused to allow the crowd to make him king at that moment. He is the rightful king, but the timing's all wrong. And so he didn't receive their accolades or agree openly with the shouts of messiahship because, again, the timing's wrong. So he's going to wait until the triumphal entry, right? The, the week we call Easter week, and, and he's, he's going to enter into Jerusalem with the knowledge he's going to be crucified a few days later. And that event is the thing that opens the door for us to become kingdom citizens fully. 
So here Jesus is modeling something, though, for us that we as a culture are not very good at. And again, he, he underscores the importance of sending crowds away to be alone with God. I just, I just want to underscore this. I want to make sure that we're hearing this. This is not something we do well as a culture. Um, in fact, we're more like everything's more frantic and happening constantly, and we're distracted. And, and a lot of the times, these guys right here are the culprits. And, and sometimes I want to just throw it, you know, out in a, in a lake and be done with it. And then I'm like, oh, what, what, what would I do if I lost my phone, right? I'd feel so, uh, uh, I don't know who I am apart from my device, right? And so I, I think like this whole concept of just regularly disconnecting from the world and, and just deliberately connecting with Jesus is so important for us. And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. It's less about the physical location because like higher elevations don't really get you closer to God. He's, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Um, but it's not about location. It's about isolation. I got, uh, I got to spend Friday morning with Ethan, my second-born son, and we were cleaning guns and having fun in the kitchen. And it was just me and him. Nobody else was home. It's just me and Ethan. And he lives in an apartment in Stanwood with Noah now. And, and um, um, you know, but, but the boys are working full time and Abby's working a lot of hours and she's doing school and online and, and, um, and Jen's busy with ministry and, and it's just me and the dog most days. So it's, it's like, this is, this is an opportunity for me to, to kind of press into the Lord. Um, but we were just, you know, we just spent the morning talking and um, spending time with Ethan was great, not because of what we did together, but because of who he is in relationship to me. That's what made it special, is the relationship that we have. And that's what God wants with us. I mean, we have that relationship with him if we're saved, but he really wants us to just want to spend time with him, to want to get alone with him. Hey, Dad, can we, can we grab coffee this week? I'd love to just sit and hang out with you for a little while. That's, that's what he loves. He loves. Um, and that's, that's how God feels about each one of us who are his born-again children. He, he wants us to set aside regular time to spend with him, just talking and communing. And, and your pops wants to hang out with you and hear what's going on in your life, to hear your heart and the things that are weighing you down, the things that are blessing your life. With the Lord, it's, it's, it's all about relationship. When I was on staff at Smoky Point, uh, we used to have to, like it was, a, it was policy that you, if you were on staff, you had to take one day a month and go away, leave your phone in the car, leave your phone at home and get out in nature, go, go somewhere and just be alone with the Lord and take a day every month. And I love that practice. I love spending time in solitude, even if it's just an hour or a couple of hours. If you're a mom and you've got littles, that's not even practical for you. I understand that. If you've got little ones, you, you're going to do well to find 15 minutes in your day of quiet time, um, probably during their nap and, and likely end up napping yourself. And that's okay. You know, if you you like, I'm reading the Bible and then suddenly I'm not uh, like an hour went by. It's like, okay, that that's a blessing from the Lord. You needed the rest. But the question I have for you is, do you guys have a weekly Sabbath? Do you take a day? God never rescinded that, by the way. He, he wants his people. It doesn't have to be Saturday, according to the Old Testament. And, it, and for me, it's definitely not Sunday. I'm working. Kevin, Kevin works on Sundays. So it's, it's not the day of the week. It's are you setting aside time in your week to rest 
out of faith. It's, it's a faith thing. Intentional rest and regular rhythm of Sabbath honor the Lord because we're saying by our actions that we need not strive every moment of every day when the Lord is our God and He's the one who provides for us. That's what that's about. It's an act of faith to say the Lord is our God. He provides. I don't have to scurry about you know every moment of every day to get what I need. Jesus provides. And so... So this is the picture here. Jesus puts his guys in the boat, sends them across the lake. And again, Jesus, he just needs time alone with the Father in prayer. And and I just think, well, I won't speak for any of you. I'll just speak for me. I struggle with these things because we're, we're constantly surrounded by our devices and by people and the whole world at our fingertips, literally. And, and we desperately need to develop the spiritual disciplines and habits that Jesus is demonstrating for us in the text. We must endure times of silence now, I, I couldn't do that when the kids were growing up. And now I love it. I just want to sit. Just like this. You hear some of you moving in your seats. It's, it's beautiful. I could just stop preaching right now. We could just spend the rest of the service not saying anything. But I won't do that to you because it would be weird. So, let's... Press on the text here, section 107. Matthew's gospel has this, Matthew 14, 24 to 33. But the boat by this time was a long way from land. It was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of a little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Listen to Mark, Mark's account here, Mark six forty-seven to 52. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea. He was alone on the land, Jesus was. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Don't pass that by. Like, that's crazy. He walked on the sea. He, he meant to pass them by. I'm like, well, I wonder what his motive was. Like, well, they'll get there eventually. You know, He's just going to walk right by him. But when they saw him, verse 49, walking on the sea, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. It's all about, all of this is tied back to the feeding of the 5,000. Okay? And then here's John. Here's John's gospel, John 6, 16 to 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into the boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. 
the sea became rough because a strong wind a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, I don't know if you've ever rowed a boat in a storm. That's that's a lot of work. Uh, three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it's I, it is I, don't, don't be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Some supernatural stuff happening here in this passage. And so we see the apostles are far from land. It's the middle of the night. It's raging tempest on the water. They can't see anything because it's pitch black and it's stormy. And we're told this is the fourth watch of the night. So that would be 3 a.m. This is 3 a.m. in the morning. Out of nowhere comes this apparition. This figure of a man walking by himself. They're in the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee. What in the world is going on? It can't possibly be a man. We're out in the middle of this huge lake the size of a small sea. It's a freshwater sea. And here's a dude walking. The appearance of Jesus walking in the water is so jarring. They can't make sense of it. They don't know what to think. They think it's an apparition or something else. It scares them. The apostles in the boat are just totally freaked out by this storm. And you need to remember, like it, I, had to, I had to go back to this this week. Several of these guys in the boat were commercial fishermen. They had been on this lake their whole lives. This storm was so severe that it had them that frightened. That's a big deal. They've been, on, they've been fishing on this lake their whole lives. You better know they, they had been through storms, but this one's got them really wound up. And then here comes this. This thing, walking out, this apparition on the water. It's a ghost. Like I'm thinking about um, cars, you know, the, the, the mater. It's the ghost lot. It's the ghost. Um, they're just freaking out, man. So of the three accounts here that we have in the Bible, only one mentions Peter walking on the water, and it's not Mark's gospel, which was Peter's account of Jesus. I find that intriguing. Peter didn't want to make much of Either he didn't want to make much of having walked on water or he didn't want to make much of the fact that he almost sank when he doubted. In either case, Peter's gospel written by Mark, his amanuensis, his secretary, doesn't have that piece in it. And it could be that later when Christ was resurrected, Peter wanted to stay away from anything that might seem braggadocious. We, we do know that Peter, at the end of his life, chose to be crucified upside down because he said he was unworthy to die in the manner that Christ had died. So there's a good deal of humility set in over the course of Peter's life. But here in the text, Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come out onto the water. And in the text, in Matthew, it details Peter's experience as he walks on water with Jesus. But again, don't miss what happens. When he, sees, when he, when he takes his eyes off of Jesus and puts his eyes on his circumstances, that's when he begins to sink. And I think, there's, I think there's something there for us. I, I think Peter coming out to walk on the water with Jesus is autobiographical of all of us as Christians. Because initially, in some challenging circumstance that comes into our life, we have faith and we start to walk forward. And then as we begin to walk forward with Jesus, the circumstances, we, we put our eyes on all the circumstances and all the what ifs and all the uh, why this isn't going to work. And we start to sink and doubt 
And Jesus reaches down and he saves us and he lifts us above the circumstances. I think, I think this is autobiographical for us. So let's, let's go on to section 108 and, and, and wrap this up this morning. Section 108, uh, Matthew 14, 34 to 36. So when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that he might only just touch, that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as who touched it were made well. And then Mark records this as well. Mark's gospel, Mark 6, 53 to 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And they ran through the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever he came, in villages or cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might just touch, they might even just touch the fringe of his garment. I wonder where they got that idea. And some of them had heard about the woman with the issue of blood. And many, as many as touched it were made well. Here these Gentiles, they didn't have the Torah. They didn't have a relationship with the living God as a people group. But here they are, they've heard about Jesus. They've, they've met Jesus. They've heard about him coming there and healing the demoniac. And now they're coming in droves and they're being healed. So Jesus and company have come back to, the, to Gennesaret where, where the demoniac was healed. Jesus takes that opportunity to connect with the Gentiles who've learned about him through the telling of that incident. Remember, he left the demoniac, the healed demoniac. He said, go tell what God has done for you. And he did. He became an evangelist. That's why all these people are showing up. And so we can just reasonably deduce, given the Jews' inclination to forcibly make Jesus uh, their king for all the wrong reasons, which is why he left or went up on the mountainside, sent them away. This is a welcome break from that agenda. It affords Jesus and the apostles to have a break from the Jewish crowds who at this point just want to set him over them as an earthly king so that he'll overthrow the Romans. And, and remember the fringe we talked about, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the woman with the issue of blood. When she grabbed the hem of Jesus's garment, she was healed. And this is the same fringe, the same place of authority that she took a hold of. Anyone here in the text that took a hold of that in faith, they were healed from their infirmity. And this is what happens when those who've, who've been touched and healed and saved by Jesus go and tell others what he's done for them. And this is why we're commanded as the people of God to go and share the gospel message with other people. What an incredible uh, reality. If we showed up here next week and, and everybody had been just like incredibly like, whoa, I can't believe what Jesus has done in my life, telling everybody we know, who else would be in the room next Sunday? Who would be here hearing the gospel, hearing the word of God? That's that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to tell the world. So this thing about kingship, though, see, you, you got to remember history is littered with kings and would-be kings, both good and bad. There have been some good kings, some bad kings. We won't talk about presidents. We've got plenty of those on both sides of the equation, too. Um, but if we're going to talk about Jesus' coming kingdom, I think we should at least look at Psalm 2 for one of the clearest presentations of the coming kingdom, apart from the book of Revelation. Revelation has a lot to say about the kingdom. But Psalm 2, 
Listen to this. And it may not be what you expect. If you've never read through the Psalms, especially if you've never read Psalm 2, this may be jarring for you. Listen, listen to what the psalmist says about Christ's kingdom in its fullness during the thousand years of the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. So it starts with a rhetorical question. He, he, the psalmist asks this. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You mean there's rebellion at the end of the millennium? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It's like, Years ago, when Shirley MacLaine, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that actress, she she got into the New Age stuff, and 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 so she 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 adopted the belief that she was a god, and and there was this moment where she had gone down to the beach in California, and she was just standing there beneath the cliffs as the ocean was crashing in at her feet, and and she's she's just looking up, going, "I am God," and all I could think about in that moment was being up on a cloud with the Lord, looking down, going, "Here." He's like, Gabriel, come here. Look at this. Look at, look at that. <laughs> she thinks she's God. This is the reality, even in the millennial kingdom, right? Against the Lord and his anointed saying, we're going to burst their bonds apart. We're going to cast away their cords from us. His rules, his Morality is not going to bind us any longer. And then it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And he will say, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus. He's the king. He's the king of the whole world during the millennium. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, now it's Jesus speaking in verse 7. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will, this is the Father speaking to the Son, verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. It's going to be incredible. The, the rule of Jesus for a thousand years is going to be incredible. Now, therefore, here's the wrap-up of this psalm, verse 10. So in light of that, the psalmist says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This psalm is a future, near future, I believe, reality. Seven years of wrath poured out on the earth while we who are his body and bride are with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're at the wedding feast. We're the bride of Christ. Do you know the church is called the bride of Christ and the body of Christ? We're with him at the wedding feast for seven years, not as a guest, as the bride. And then Jesus will rise up from the banqueting table and we will follow him to earth 
where he will vanquish the enemy and cast him into the bottomless pit for a millennium. As the earth experiences the reign of Christ for a thousand years. When that thousand years has ended, this, by the way, the, the, the Old Testament Jews, the Jews of the time of Jesus understood this eschatology. It's why they wanted to make him king. They understood if he's the Messiah, he's going to establish a kingdom on the earth that will last for a thousand years. And they want it. Now they've been oppressed. They've been trampled. They want that. They understand this. And those who on the earth who have not been glorified as Christ's bride will have free will and they'll have a choice. Not all of them will choose what is good and righteous. But this when this thousand years is ended, there's a rebellion again. Uh, we, we read about that in, in Revelation and, and a couple of other places in the Bible. And the reason for this is to show that even in a perfect world, sin can still disrupt, can still destroy. And the earth will be cleansed. So, so God will cleanse the earth and cleanse humanity will live under the actual physical rule of Jesus, and Jesus will actually physically reign and rule from Jerusalem over the whole earth. And yet, again, there, there are going to be those who don't bow down to him in their hearts. They don't want his reign over them. And all of this would demonstrate so clearly the faithfulness and goodness of God, um, and, and that our faithfulness and our goodness is not really about our circumstances, is it? If we live in a perfect world with a perfect king and people are still rebelling, it's not about our circumstances. It's about the condition of our hearts. So we look back and take inventory of our faith, heritage, and history. We see that from the beginning of the nation of Israel, in the person of Abraham, all the way to the engrafting of the Gentiles into the church at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the world has looked upon God's working and God's covenant people with amazement and also disdain. Christ's followers have always been regarded by the rest of the world as extremists and fanatics. And many Christians have sought some parlay, some compromise to make this life a little easier in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution. If believers merely strive to be nice and to do good works, and to do community service, can expect to be tolerated for the most part. But if believers speak out um, and live according to God's commandments and preach the word and evangelize, as the Bible instructs, we're going to be seen as intolerant by those who embrace sin. It's, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. So this is what has happened to Western civilization in our, in our lifetime. This is what's going on when tolerant North American society is so blatantly intolerant. Why is hate, in quotes, why is hate such an evil thing when it's leveled at Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, born-again Christians? Why is that acceptable to hate some and then hates, like a, it's almost like a bad word. You can't say it in other contexts. Well, the Bible tells us really clearly, and I want you to hear this, because I think there's so much confusion in the church. The church in American culture for so long was in a place of prominence, and we've declined. And now we're not in a place of prominence. And, and so people are confused about that who have been church people. And, and I say church people, it doesn't necessarily mean all saved people. It means people who go to church, and not everybody who goes to church is saved. But, but people who are in that culture of, of church. So 
here's, here's what John, John's gospel says. This is Jesus speaking in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, just know that it hated me first before it hated you. And if you were of the world, <laughs> the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, Jesus says, therefore the world hates you. I want you to know as you leave this place, if you're born again today, Jesus promises that the world will hate you. So, so what else does Jesus say about this? Because you're not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world. The world hates you. Remember, he says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours. But all these things they, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know the one true and living God. As we come to Christmas, we remember that this cosmic war was already raging. It's already raging. And the Son of God glorified in the heavens. He took the assignment on himself to infiltrate beyond, behind enemy lines, not as a radiant warrior destroying his enemies, but as a baby laid in a manger to rescue and save any and all who would come to him by faith. See, faith in Jesus is always about taking sides with God in this cosmic war. The moment people pledge allegiance to King Jesus, they're going to be targeted by the kingdoms of this world system and the proxies of Satan. Think about it. I just want to drive this point home this morning. In North America today, nobody would dream about speaking publicly negative things about Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Native American religions. You would be ostracized. You would be, the media would come to your front door, but it's open season on the church. It's open season on Christians. And this is a phenomenon that can be seen all over the world. We're, we're, we're just catching up to our brothers and sisters all around the world. They've been experiencing this for a long time. The true biblical Christianity inevitably stirs up animosity and opposition wherever it is practiced and preached around the world. And the reason is obvious, because we live in a world that's at war. We have a real enemy who hates us. He wants to deceive and lead people astray. And we have a God who loves us, who wants us to know the truth. So this is a spiritual battle that's been raging in the heavenly since Satan fell. The kingdoms of this world are arrayed and aligned against the kingdom of God. And beneath all of this, this is what sets up Psalm 2, right? Beneath all of this is a choice. Whether men and women, boys and girls, will align with Christ and his kingdom, or whether we will align with Satan in his usurpation and rebellion. And those are our two. It's a binary choice. It's one or the other. And, and everybody chooses. And even if you don't choose, you're choosing. Think, think about all the attempts in history to unite the world under a single leader. All the pharaohs and Caesars and men like Alexander the Great, they, they tried and, and they couldn't even get beyond their regions, really. And then, and then came a man named Adolf Hitler and he tried to unite the world. He wanted to take over the whole world. And, and, and there's this concerted effort to bring the world together, even at this moment in time, under one leader, one person, one man who will promise, and soon, I believe, promise 
to bring peace to the world and to lead us into a glorious future. And this, this man who is coming, whom I believe is already here, is not Jesus Christ, but he's anti-Christ. And if ever there was a moment for the church to strive to see the Great Commission fulfilled, it is right now. It's right now. We have to continue to tell the truth. We must continue to stand strong in the face of a shifting culture. We walk by faith and not by sight. We do so because we know we're on the winning team. We're on Team Jesus. And we want to bring as many people over to Team Jesus as we possibly can. We, we know how history will reach its climax and our, our king is coming soon. Brothers and sisters, let us embrace the kingdom paradigm of the Bible. All that we have and all that we are and all that we're becoming is rooted in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And our assignment as kingdom citizens is to make Christ known to the world around us. And as we do, he says, you're hastening my return. When we make him known to people who have not heard the gospel, when we tell the gospel to people, we're hastening the coming of Jesus Christ. Listen, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel, Jesus says, of the kingdom, it's going to be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, he says, the end will come. So do you, Jesus, are you saying that if we go and tell the gospel and we start to make disciples and we're preaching the gospel and we're letting people know about what you've done and who you are and what you've done for humanity to save us so we don't have to spend eternity in hell, that's hastening, quickening the day of the Lord and you're coming back to us? Huh. Why aren't we doing that? I mean, I have conversations with a lot of you folks every week. Going, ah, I just wish Jesus would come back. Okay, start talking about it. Start telling people, let's make Jesus known. Hasten the day of his coming. Jesus was and is the eternal king. We'll wrap up with this. Eternity is, it goes infinitely into the past, like we said earlier, and infinitely into the future. And, and Jesus is the I am. He encompasses all of that. As we read through the Gospels, it's important to remember at the, at the point of our reading, he's not yet seized it. He's not taken possession of it, what is rightfully his, but he's going to. He's going to, and he's all patient, and he's all wise. And all of history has led to this moment, and all the moments that come after between now and when Jesus comes again are going to converge into one future reality where sin is defeated and death is no more. And with that in mind, I leave you with the lyrics to one of my favorite, favorite, favorite gospel songs. And I would have brought my guitar up here and sang it for you, but every time I try to sing it, I weep. I'm not sure I can get through the lyrics. So, what a day that will be. How many of you guys know that song? Oh, I love that song. There'll be no sorrows there, no more burdens to bear. See, I can't even get through the first lyric. No more sickness and no more pain, no more parting over there. But forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. And then the chorus goes like this. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, when he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. Lord, we look forward to that day with you, and we believe that it's coming soon. But even if it doesn't, Lord, would you give us the unction and the, the filling of your spirit and all the things that we need that pertain to life and godliness so that we may walk faithfully before you in these days. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us. 
And we look forward to that glorious day when we are with you. Pray this in your name. Amen. Jesus was and is the eternal king and his kingdom is right now and it's not yet. Every person on the planet Earth is invited and welcome to put their faith in Jesus and become citizens of that kingdom. We have not seen it. We have not grasped it. We don't even have an inkling of what we're going to be like when we're glorified in his presence. But rest assured, the kingdom of God is real, physically and spiritually. It is coming. Every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Maestro Church, you are sent.